Three questions are kind of paint three portraits that are very vastly different from one another. So I want you to think through them for a moment as I share them. Have you ever had someone do something in your life that was so overwhelming that you knew the words thank you weren't sufficient? I mean, maybe you send them a card, maybe you send them a gift card. You just wanted so desperately to express your gratitude, but you knew the words thank you or even the card that you were writing on seemed somewhat insufficient to what they did. I still remember a few weeks ago when I'm in Colorado, my wife's in Ohio and our house gets flooded in the bottom and everybody that, that were close to us and some friends and a really special neighbor that we love came over and immediately pitched in. We couldn't get there. No matter what we tried to do, we couldn't get there. And we have friends all over our place taking everything out, taking care of it, cleaning it up, taking out all the water, walking through water to get there. And my daughter said, I can never forget the picture in my mind of your neighbor across the street who took your wedding album and peeled all the pictures out of the plastic and was drying them individually one by one so that he had some memories and something preserved. Now, we only had 12 pictures in our wedding. But she wanted to make sure you had something preserved. And I thought, how do I say thank you? I mean, what do you say when somebody does something so amazing you don't know how to express it? Second portrait. If you're a parent and had a child drifting away, or maybe you're a friend who's had another friend going down a path that you knew was going to bring them destruction, and you gave them guidance and direction, and they still continued down that path, you know it was about to break your heart. You loved them. You gave them unconditional love as a parent. You gave them great advice as a friend. You wanted to so badly keep them from going down that road because you knew where it was going to lead. And you gave them every piece of advice. You gave them all the information they could possibly have to not go down that path, as well as you gave them all the danger signs on the end of that to know where they were going, but they still continued down that road. If you've ever been there, you know how that feels. Especially when you don't know or maybe never have found out if they've turned back. I've been in ministry a long time, and I've had parents pass away before they ever had the opportunity to see their children come home to Jesus. And so they've died in that emptiness of wondering, will they ever come home? Third portrait. Think in your mind what it would be like if someone came to you and said you had two weeks to live. What would you do? Now, obviously, I know how you'd feel. Overwhelmed. What would you do? What would you want to do? What would you try to fit in to that time frame? Would you be so preoccupied with your death that nothing else mattered and no one else mattered? Or would everybody in your life matter so much you wanted to spend as much time as you possibly could with them because you knew that window was closing really, really fast? About a year or two ago, I had a conversation with a friend that I've known the whole time I've been here. And the doctor did say to him, you've got one to two months maximum to live. If you choose not to go this route, you have one or two months, maybe. It's a risky conversation because you want to do it within the context of relationships. But I've, I've, I've wanted to ask someone like that, what is it like? I mean, what do you feel? What do you, what do you want to do? What would you like to do? What was it like hearing the words? You've got a real short time to live. What would you want to accomplish? What would you want to make sure 
you said. All three of those emotions, as vastly different as they are, come into play on this particular week that we call Passion Week. Today is Palm Sunday, the beginning of the end of the amazing. This incredible journey that God has been on, that he sent his son on, and for these three years of ministry, it has been incredible. Crowds have gathered, people have gathered, some have come, some have left, lives have been changed, and now everything that God had planned from the beginning of time was about to unfold and take place, practically, really, one after the other, right in front of their eyes. And everybody who was there during this experience, at one point or the other, has one or two or three of those emotions. Jesus, knowing that he had a real short time to live and knowing exactly how he was going to die, the people around him who just wanted to express to him love and adoration, who didn't even know how to put it into words, and the God of the universe, seeing his children walk so far down the road toward destruction, knowing that the only way to ever rescue them was to offer himself as a living sacrifice, all are culminated in the events of this week. Imagine what it's like from the vantage point of the God of the universe. If you've ever had the opportunity to see a stunning portrait or an amazing sculpture, whether it be Michelangelo or Da Vinci or somebody else like that, you know how awe-inspiring it can be. In God's amazing grace, I had the opportunity years ago to go to the Sistine Chapel. I walked through it in silence. I mean, all I could do was look up. I looked like a tourister to begin with because all I'm doing is walking around like this. But I was amazed at the portraits. I mean, they were breathtaking. But they were a portrait. You and I are God's masterpiece. A few weeks ago, when Martin had you go on a journey for a moment to a breathtaking place or an overlook where you saw a long way beyond what you were looking at at that particular point, I'm not sure where any of you went. But in your mind's eye, when you go to those places, whether it be Sedona, Arizona, Cannon Beach, Oregon, Grand Canyon, the Rocky Mountain National Park, the edge of Maine where you're looking over this breathtaking view, whether you're in Connecticut in the fall, whatever picture in your mind paints the most amazing portrait of God's creation you've ever seen, it all pales in comparison to this phrase, you are God's masterpiece. We don't always think like that. When I look at creation around me, I'm awe-inspired at all that God has done. It's overwhelming. It's breathtaking. It's beautiful. But you and I are God's masterpiece. Now, if I were to do what Martin did a few weeks ago or Jim did a couple of weeks ago and said to you to turn to your neighbor and say, I am God's masterpiece, they would say, you are a crack pot. We don't think like that. When I look at the breathtaking creation around me, I don't compare myself to that or think I'm more valuable, but you are. David said, every morning when I wake up, God, and see your majestic creation, I'm overwhelmed with what you have done. And then all of a sudden I concentrate on me and said, what did you do? Why? You did this for me? And so often we undervalue ourselves or demean ourselves in such a way that we never compare to all of creation or majestic portraits or unbelievable sculptures ever compare ourselves to any of those and imagine that God sees me as much more valuable than them, but he does. You and I are God's masterpiece. And because of sin, that masterpiece not only became flawed, but broken. 
and needed to be rescued and redeemed. And God had to watch that unfold century after century, century after century, century after century. As man continued going down this path of destruction, knowing throughout all of Scripture the results of that and what was going to take place and what he offered, and they still continued to go down that path. And you can almost see God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit saying, okay, now is the time. Go rescue them. I've often wondered what it was like in heaven. Galatians 4.4 just simply said, at the right moment in time, God sent forth his son. I wondered about what it was like from God's vantage point to watch all of these events unfold, to pick out of all of time, now is the time. I'm still fascinated by the fact that you and I get to be born on this side of Calvary and the birth of Christ. We could have been one on the other side waiting for it forever and it never came. But you and I have this amazing privilege and luxury of being able to be born on this side of the cross and the resurrection of Christ and the birth of Jesus. And so we get to see it all unfold. They're watching it for the very first time. And everyone who participated, everyone who watched this take place was seeing it for the very first time. Humanity in this desperate need for resurrection and desperate need of salvation continuing to cry out over and over and over again. And God said, now. Now's the time. Go rescue them. What fascinates me about that whole portrait is that Jesus knew the price he was going to have to pay to do that, and he still answered that cry. In Matthew 20, I shared to you yesterday on Phone Tree that I wanted you to read 20 and 21 and 29. I, every year, encourage people to take Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and read one of those sections of Scripture, maybe read them all, just to get a fresh view of everything that took place. We hear it over and over and over again. Sometimes we're not careful. It kind of says, yeah, I know that. I've read that story. It's kind of like the Christmas story. I know exactly what took place. Jesus, a baby, a manger, and the shepherds, and all of that. You never want to miss the beauty and wonder of this moment. And so this year, I want to share with you in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. Now, Jesus was going to Jerusalem. Took the 12 disciples aside. I find that interesting because so often we only picture him with the 12. And, and Mark, it says he sent out 70. And there was a number of occasions where there were a lot of people. But at this particular point, he, out of the crowd, picked these 12, took them aside and said, Look, I, I've, I've got some things you need to hear. You've seen Jerusalem. We've been to Jerusalem. You know what it's all about. But this time it's going to be different. We're going to go up to Jerusalem. And I, who Peter has already declared now as the Son of Man, is going to be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They're going to condemn him to death and turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. I've said before, I'm not afraid to die, but I really am not anxious about the process. (laughs) I'm not afraid to die. I know the moment I leave this world, I'm going to see Jesus face to face, but I'm not really excited about the process. I have my ideas in mind as to how I'd like to go, and I've shared that with God. I'm not sure if he's going to take it up, take me up on it or do it his way. I'm kind of leaning to the fact that he's going to do it his way, but I do know how I'd like to go. I'm not worried about it, but I am uncertain about the process. Fascinates me that Jesus knew the process. He knew exactly what was going to happen, and yet he kept going. The events of this week are filled with more intensity and emotion than the previous three years of ministry. Everything that you and I hold on to is held together in Christianity by the events of this week. Everything that God had waited before time began was about to now unfold. 
Only Jesus knew how the events were going to play out, and he went into it fully committed to the plan. What intrigued me about Jesus, specifically when I read this Matthew passage, with all the events that had to be going through his mind, he still notices the individual needs of those around him. Every Sunday before I speak, I'm sitting there in my seat knowing that as I look at the script, I'm up next, and somebody takes the air out of the room. I don't know what they do with it or why they do that to me. But somebody takes the air out of the room, and I cannot get enough breath. To be really honest with you, I'm scared to death. And I know I'm about to stand up here and speak to a large audience. I'm overwhelmed that you keep coming back week after week. And I know I'm communicating God's word and speaking on his behalf. So just that alone is overwhelming, but I can't get enough breath. And I'm scared to death to stand here. Years ago, way back in the old sanctuary, I was sitting there in the front row knowing the same thing was going to take place. And I've been doing it for probably 20 years up to that particular point. And the junior high girls used to sit up front with me. I don't know when that stopped. No one sits with me now and, until they come in late and then they have to sit up here in the front row. They always came up front and sat with me. And a girl by the name of Becca, her last name was Sarvi, sat beside me. And she looked over to me and she saw that I was trying to breathe. And she thought I was either having a heart attack or that was way before I had my heart problem. And wondered what was going on. And I said, honey, I'm just scared to death. And I just can't get enough breath. A little junior high girl reached over, tapped me on the leg and said, you'll do fine. <laughs> and I said, thank you, honey. I really needed that. If you've ever been to the Olympics or seen the Olympics on TV, especially the skiers, when they're ready to get down the hill, especially with all the gates that take place or even the giant swallow and all the things that go with that, they're behind the gate before it even goes out front. And all of a sudden you see them close their eyes and their heads are bobbing and weaving and they're going through every gate or taking every turn in their head. They are so into the zone that nothing else around them matters and they can't even see it. Ed Glover is a good friend of mine, founder and executive director of Urban Impact in Pittsburgh, and he does a lot of chapels for the Pittsburgh Steelers, and I still remember him telling me about Kevin Green. Do y'all remember Kevin Green? I mean, a man was so intense, you just waited for him to bust into something and just rip the whole seam apart as he was coming through the line. Ed said he would sit there in the chapel with his head down and his hands crossed, just going like this. I mean, he would just sit there and rock back and forth and shake the, shake the whole time. He said, I wondered if he ever heard anything I was saying. He was so intense, and it was like a horse at the gate saying, somebody open this gate, because I'm going to go out and bust somebody. And he was listening to the word of God shared, but he was in a zone. It's a football game. Jesus is about to take on the weight of the world. And in this section of Scripture in Matthew, he sees the needs of two people. Overwhelmed by that. Look at it in Matthew 20, verse 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed them. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, as they always did. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted even the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, we want our sight. And Jesus had compassion on them, touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. I last Sunday morning when I said sometimes we get the mindset that God is so busy and so preoccupied with all the events of the world that he's too busy to hear my heart. 
and too busy to understand my particular need, and so I usually don't bother him with it. If it's big and I'm dying or my family's dying or I've got cancer, I'll share that with him. But if it's just the everyday occurrences in life, I don't want to take time to bother him with that. And I look at this and I imagine in my mind, can you even imagine what's going through the mind of the Son of God? Knowing what he had already told the disciples, knowing exactly what was going to take place over the next few hours and days of his life. And he still reaches out to two guys who had been blind, who had sat there forever probably and met their needs. The story continues in Matthew chapter 21. They approached Jerusalem. They came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. He sent to his disciples and said, I want you to go to the village. And at once you're going to find a colt, untie it, bring it to me. If anyone says, why do you need it? Tell them the Lord does. It took place to fill the prophet, say to the daughter of Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and the colt of a, on a colt in the foal of a donkey. Disciples went and did it just as Jesus instructed he brought the donkey and the colt and placed their coats on him, and Jesus sat there. And very large crowds spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees where we get Palm Sunday. And it's funny because most of the time I don't think it even says palms. Maybe in one other translation it does. But they cut branches and they spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was disturbed and said, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, Galilee. Every time I come to this section of Scripture and to Palm Sunday, I imagine in my mind all the people that were there that day lined up on that side of the street or the other side of the street as Jesus came down on that donkey. Got to believe that some of the people who had been there that day when he took t- a couple of pieces of fish and some bread and divided it up and 20,000 people got their meal that particular day. I got to believe that some of them may have been there to say, what, I wonder what else he's going to do. I've often wondered if these two guys were there. I mean, how do you say thank you? You've been blind all your life. You've never been able to see. And of all the senses that I ever lose, the one I'm honestly hoping I never lose is my sight. And I've often wondered, because of the sequence of the events, could they have been there that day? Now they can find their way. And they walked there that day, and they were a part of the crowd. And you got to wonder what runs through their mind. How can I ever say thanks for what you just did for me? I wanted all of my life to see, and now what I'm seeing is incredible. People who had been lame from birth, crippled limbs, blind eyes, all through Jesus' ministry had seen the miraculous take place, and you often wonder how many of them happened to be there that day. It was a natural day, a feast day, and a lot of Jews gathered together in Jerusalem about this time of the year. A number of commentators say somewhere between 50 and 200,000 extra people were there that day. That's beyond the population of Butler, obviously. The population of Butler County is 186,000 people. So all of Butler, added to another event, came together for that particular day from all walks of life and all backgrounds to give him praise and adoration from a variety of standpoints, just wanting to make sure they were there and a part of that. Some were singing, some were celebrating, some were expressing their gratitude, some were just watching it unfold. Some were all excited, others wanted to keep the crowd down. One of the Translations talk about the Pharisees saying, hey, look, 
Jesus, you got to quiet this down. And then there's that classic phrase that most pastors have always used on Palm Sunday. Look, I'm just telling you right now, if you try to keep them quiet, the stones are going to cry out. I've often said, God, I hope you never have to go to the rocks to get your praise. After all that I know you've done for me. Every single Sunday morning, we gather together to sing. We've often used that phrase where two or three are gathered together. He is in our midst. That's usually an excuse for only one or two showing up for prayer meeting. It was never to be used in that context at all. It was actually used in the context of dealing with confrontation in Matthew 18. He said, look, if you've got to confront a brother who's going down a path and they don't believe you and they don't take any turn or action, take somebody else with you. Take a third person with you if you need to. But I'm telling you, confronting is really difficult. So I need you to know when two or three of you go do that, I'm right there with you. Man, when one gathers together, he's in our midst. Psalm 22, verse 3 said, God inhabits the praise of his people. God shows up when his people give him praise. And just as there are a variety of responses, then there always will be. Some will sing and praise out of habit, some because it's a part of the service, some because they like music, others just because they get caught up in the emotion. Others really want to share gratitude and grace. Others just want to listen. Some wish it were more exciting, some wish it were more solemn. However we respond, what fascinates me is like Jesus who saw the needs of two people in this vast array of humanity with all this going through his mind, he sees us as well. He knows whether our hearts are in it or not. So when we sing at the end of the service this morning, and we celebrate like we normally do and not always at the end of the service, it's an opportunity for us to say thank you, to tell them what's going on in our lives, to listen to the heart cries of other people just to give them praise, or just to be a part of the celebration that lifts up to heaven gratitude to the God of the universe for sending his son to rescue and redeem us and set us free. One other event in Matthew. It's in Matthew 26. Now instead of a crowd, instead of hundreds or thousands of people gathered there, it's only a few. And what's unique about that particular one in Matthew is that instead of a lot of people being pointed out, there's really only one center of focus, two, I guess, when you obviously include Christ. And this one is a, a very obscure moment, but one that Jesus said will re- be remembered for all of time. And it has been. John identifies a lady who came in with an alabaster jar full of perfume to anoint Jesus as Mary. Mary, the mother of, or the, the sister of Lazarus, the one Jesus raised from the dead. You remember the story when Jesus went to have dinner at their house and Martha was so busy, so preoccupied with a number of things and Mary was sitting listening at Jesus' feet and Martha was kind of uptight about that and said, okay, come on, Jesus Somebody's got to get the meal together. Why doesn't she help? And Jesus said, look, she's chosen at this moment what's really more important. It's the same Mary, John says, that comes in that day, kind of behind Jesus that no one else saw with this incredibly expensive jar of oil. I mean, really expensive, crazy expensive. One translation says she broke it. Sometimes we would often think in the anointing process, you would take the lid off and the cap off and pour it out so that you could retain some of it because of its value. 
The one translation that seems to indicate that it was broken often has said to me, there's no way she's going to take this back. She just wants to express it all. I'm not going to keep any for myself. I'm not going to hold on to it too tightly. I'm going to let it all go. The people around her are stunned that that took place. Didn't even think it should have been done. But Jesus says she's done something. I often wondered if he thought it more than any of you did. But she did something that will be remembered for all of time. And, of course, the story has been. You and I, every week of our journey with Jesus, have an opportunity from one vantage point or the other in the mass of celebration or the solemn moments by ourselves to express our love and gratitude. We were that one going down a wrong path. And God came and rescued us and redeemed us if we know Jesus as our Savior and gave us life and set us free. Next Sunday morning, I'll tell you a story about how powerful that is at the end of life. And so you have that opportunity in those solemn moments or the celebrative moments of the large crowd to give him praise and adoration. So I hope it just comes naturally. That it's not manufactured or manipulated or wells up because someone says you ought to. You just do because you just want to say thank you. And maybe you're that parent or that friend whose friend or child was going down that wrong path and you've lived long enough to see them return. Man, you really want to say thank you. And maybe you recognize the brevity of life because you see it around you all the time and in this grand scheme of things, even if you live to be 100, in light of century after century after century, it's pretty brief and pretty short. And you want to make sure you live it well. And you want to be reminded of that. And you want to just say, help me to live this life well and full till the end. We're going to sing. We're going to share. We're going to love. And we're going to go home. And we're going to continue this journey this week into the most amazing week in the history of humanity. Father, I thank you for your amazing grace. And that every Sunday as we gather here, we have the opportunity to Kind of share together as a family of God. There may be that one here sitting this morning who comes from a different vantage point than the people around them. Maybe recently they've been rescued and redeemed from a path that was leading down to destruction. And they just want to say how grateful they are that they've lived long enough to see your grace unfold in front of their lives. Maybe others have seen the miraculous take place. Others just want to sing because they know and understand salvation. Others have joined with thousands or hundreds that gather here this morning and some in the solemnness of this week in a quiet moment when it's just you and them. They want to again express to you their love. So as this week unfolds and you give us just this amazing portraits in Scripture of what it's like, I trust that it's never a story that's told so often that we forget the wonder and the incredible nature of what took place. And we join with thousands around this globe who will give you praise. May you never, ever have to go to the rocks to get your praise. May it come from us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.